We'll read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll walk through them verse by verse. And remember, I'll stop at the end of each point. Um, If you've got questions about those verses, uh, then let's spend a little bit of time chatting about them. If not, we'll keep rolling. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, this is the famous couple verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, let's talk about what it means to be saved. Verses 1 through 3, let's walk through those again. These are scary verses. If you take these serious, um, this changes everything. And honestly, if we taught this um, as a society, and we understood this to be God's word as we do here in the church, This would make the nightly news make a lot more sense, what we're about to read. A lot of pieces would come together in people's minds as to why there are bad things and bad people. It says in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the first question some people might want to ask is, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? And Paul says, sin. And not only sin, but the peripheral uh, issues, what causes sin, the the result of sin. There's six things, um, at least, that he mentions in these three verses. And so let's walk through each one of them. He says, and you, so now this is kind of a juxtaposition of those, he's talking to believers, and he's saying, you once lived a certain way, but you don't anymore. But let me remind you, there was a previous life. So every Christian, by definition, should have a previous life. (laughs) If they're in a new life, then there was an old life. If your old life and your new life look the same, there might be an issue. There might be an issue. If nothing's really changed, there's an issue. He says, you, he's talking to us, were dead. So the first thing that we're saved from is death. We know in Romans, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. Now, when sin entered the world, Things were perfect before that. There was no physical death, and so there was no spiritual death. But when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and their decision-making, we know sin broke things. And one of the ways that we were broken is that we physically died. And what he's saying here is Paul saying, you are spiritually dead. Just like you take your, your phone off the charger, and you know every second and every minute it is going to lose power, lose power, lose power, until it's what? Dead. And sometimes when you get a brand new phone, it says right off the bat, charge this before doing anything. Because sometimes they show up without any power at all. And Paul's saying, when you come into this world, you are spiritually dead. Dead people can't do anything. They can't call out for help. They can't struggle to get their way back into life or health. They can't do anything. Dead people are dead. And he's saying, spiritually, you are dead. But Jesus makes us alive. That's good news. And then number two, he says, in the trespasses and sins. So he he saves us from death, Christ does. And he also saves us from, of course, sin. Now, you ever been hiking or um, 
out wandering and you come across someone's property where it says no trespassing, you've seen a no trespassing sign, you know very clearly that you're not supposed to go any further, right? That's what that means. To trespass is to go beyond the boundaries, beyond the limits. You're crossing a line. And in the Greek, this word means your failures to act in accordance to God's will. And sin is when you actively, not just miss the mark, but you engage in wrongdoing. There's sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission, things that you do that you know are wrong. And there's sins of omission, meaning there's a lot of good things God has told us to do that we just don't do. Both of them are missing the mark. And he says, in your previous life, you were dead because of your sin, because of your trespasses. And he says, you once walked this way, following the course of the world. The third thing that he ultimately has saved us from, if we're in Christ, is rebellious living. Now we're going to talk more about this in a little bit because we don't experience much victory for many of us anyhow. But he says, you once walked in a certain way and it was the course of the world. Everyone was going this way. It's like life is a river and there's a deep undertow that's pulling people in one direction and you're born into this thing and you're just naturally going to go there unless someone takes you out of there because the river ain't changing. And he's saying that's kind of what the world is like. There's an undertow of godlessness. There's an undertow of rebellion. That humanity wants to be God. They think they know how God should work and enact and be. And they are against God. And if you're not in Christ, this is what your previous life was like. The Bible says we were enemies of God. We were caught up in this path, this course. And he says, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The fourth thing that you're ultimately saved from is the devil and evil powers. You see, he says something funny here, the, the prince of the power of the air. Isn't that a weird way to describe something? He's talking about Satan. You know, we know Satan to be an angel who rebelled against God. He was created to be a messenger, to be a minister. He re- rebelled against God. He was cast out of heaven with a third of the other angels. We know these as demons, and there's evil. There's an evil spirit that comes from the enemy, and this enemy is influencing people on earth. And one day, God's going to cast him, According to Revelation, in the middle of the tribulation, he's going to cast him into the lake of fire and he won't have authority. But right now he's got influence to mess with people. He's got influence to have his way. And a good portion of the world, biblically it would be everyone who's not in Christ, whether they know it or not, is influenced by him. He's doing what he wants through people. Some people, it's blatant. You turn on the news and you say, there's rape, there's murder, there's terrorism. You say, there's evil, right? But then there's also the people who live quiet lives, who try to be moral, who who try to just be a good person. And apart from Christ, the Bible's saying, this is still the wide road. And although it looks a lot different than what you perceive as evil, in the eyes of God, if you're separated from him, If you hate him, if you don't have faith in Jesus, then ultimately, it's all in one boat, sailing in the wrong direction. And that's a problem. And most people have come to the conclusion that they're not evil, that they have nothing to do with the devil. And so they don't want anything to do with God, but they don't want anything to do with the devil. They just want to be in this gray area. And it doesn't work that way. And the majority of people are headed in this direction. But just because the majority of the people head in a certain direction doesn't mean the majority gets to define morality or what's right and wrong. And that makes it difficult for Christians, right? Because we are in the world, even though we're not of the world, and we see everyone moving in a direction, and we know they're influenced by the enemy, and it's hard to call people evil because they don't look very evil, but what they're doing in the eyes of God is evil. He's saying, this is what you once were. Everyone is either in this boat or was in this boat. If their faith is now in Christ, they're not. 
And he's now at work in a bunch of people in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, so everyone was there, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. The fifth thing that he saves us from, ultimately, is our old sin nature. He gives you a new nature. He makes you a new creation. And it's marked by two things. Number one, you know in your old life, you had thoughts in your mind that were not of God whether it be a simple thought of pride or all kinds of evil thoughts. We've all done things. And if you've done one thing, you've done all things, right? Because one is as good as all. It's it's the same. Broken is broken. You don't have to crack a glass vase a thousand times to make it broken just once. And so, ultimately, not only do you go from having thoughts that were against God, but your fleshly desires are now going to be changed as well. God's going to give you new desires. Here's the thing about Christianity, and we've talked about this in the past. If your daily goal is perfection in your behavior, knowing that you have an old life battling with this new life, and your body, to some extent, is a vessel, and it can be used for evil, right? Or it can be used for good. And you know you're not going to reach perfection today, even though Christ in you is perfect. You need to set your pace at progress, not perfection. Because progress, in the image of God, progress becoming like Christ in us, it's not only realistic, it's commanded as part of being a Christian. Perfectionism on this earth will drive you crazy because you live in a broken place with desires that are lesser desires. You see, that's what a lot of people don't understand. When you are apart from Christ, your primary or greater desires are against God, and you don't love God, and you don't want God, even though you might want to be a good person, those are lesser desires. When you are in Christ, your greater desires are to love God and to want the things of God and to grow in God, but you still have your flesh pulling you in different directions, saying, you know what, let's go back to what we were. And you're battling that, and there's so much insecurity in that because you think, gosh, am I even a Christian? Because sometimes I want to do bad things. And God's ultimately saying, are you progressing? Not to take the place of Christ, but if Christ is in you, you're going to start behaving like those who you hang around the most. And so you're going to be more like Jesus if you're in Jesus. For some of us, that's scary because if we don't see our lives transformed to look more like Jesus, it might be because Jesus isn't in us. And so we're just a fluffed up version of our old life. We have different habits and we go to church and we try to do good things now, but it's not really any different in our heart. Our mind is not being renewed Our heart doesn't have any different desires than it used to have. And that's a serious thing. Unfortunately, I think there's a whole bunch of Christians who might be in there. And then it says, number six, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So again, everyone's in this boat. You were saved from wrath. So you're saved from death to life. You go from uh, sin to righteousness. You're saved from the course of this world, rebellious living, to now Holy Spirit-empowered sanctification. You go from being under the influence of the enemy to God. You go from your sin nature to a new nature. And ultimately, you are saved from wrath and a child of wrath to a child of God. Now, we don't like to talk much about wrath, right? Because it's scary. It should be scary. When he says wrath, we could, we could tell you, well, the Greek means this, and then um, there's this little nuance here. No, wrath means wrath. It's bad. Everything about it is bad. And ultimately, the Bible says that you are storing up for yourself wrath. God is a God that has wrath. You say, God shouldn't have wrath. This is what happens when you attribute one attribute to God and don't let him um, ultimately be seen in his fullness. You see, there's attributes like love. If God was only loving, then yeah, he might not have wrath. 
But God's not just only loving. God is a God of justice, as much as he's a God of love. And a God of justice has anger towards things that are unjust. And so people who don't do what they were created ultimately to do, to be in relationship with him, there's wrath. And it's being stored up. And some people say, well, I don't feel like I'm I'm experiencing too much wrath. Well, you will experience wrath apart from Christ. And it says that it's being stored up on the day of judgment. I feel like God's, you know, I'm a Christian. And so this shouldn't even apply to me because I feel like God's done some things to my life that are are bad, even as a believer. Don't get confused. Don't get discipline confused with wrath. (laughs) Those are two completely different things. But ultimately, Christ in our place took God's wrath. That's the good news of the gospel, that God's wrath, and we were the object of it, was poured out on Christ so that we don't have to experience the punishment of our own sin. Here's ultimately how salvation is talked about in the Bible. Past, present, future. And I want to end this point by by talking about these three parts, because you'll hear in the New Testament, the Bible will, will speak of Christians and say, you who were once saved, so past, and you who are being saved, so there's a work going on right now. And then in the day or on the day of salvation, there's a future salvation. And you're saying, what is this? Are we saved or are we not saved? Are we being saved? How does it all work together? And here's basically what it all boils down to. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, Hebrews says he died once and for all, not just all people who would place faith in him, but for all your sins. And so you are saved from the past punishment of your sins. So not just the sins you've done in the past, the sins that you might commit today or commit tomorrow. So for those who wonder, well, if I don't confess my sin and I get in a car wreck, am I going to heaven? Right? He died once for all. So what he did in the past, he took away the past punishment or the current punishment of your sins. Here's the kicker, though. Number one, if you're in Christ, you're not going to abuse grace because you're going to love the things God loves and hates the things God hates. You're going to hate sin. So the, well, can we just do whatever we want thing? That doesn't gel with Christianity because it doesn't gel with your new nature. But also... There's still earthly consequences for sin. If you kill someone, you can have forgiveness in Christ. And your sins can be washed clean spiritually, but you probably still need to go to prison. There's earthly consequences. There's discipline from the Father, but there's not punishment from the Father. If he sees you living rebellious, he's going to get your attention. He's going to get your attention. But if the wages of sin is death and Jesus paid that price, that penalty, then it can't be changed. So ultimately, if you're worried about losing your salvation, it's not going to happen. Because the wrath has been poured out and Jesus took that. And if your faith is in him, it doesn't change. But also, the present. So you're saved from past punishment, but you're also saved from the present power of sin. So going back to verses 1 through 3 here, there's one source uh, of power that's evil. There's another source that is the Holy Spirit. Both of these things are powerful in the world, and you both you, and you feel the, the, the power of both. But the Bible has really, really, really good news when it says in John that he who is in you, being the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. And, and so I love it when people experience the the... the the power of the Holy Spirit over the power of the enemy and say things like, you know what? There used to be things that I did that I never thought I would ever get past, but God has grown me and changed me and empowered me to, to move past those. There, there were cycles in my life that have been broken. There were sinful habits that have been snapped. There, there have been things that I don't do anymore. And I look back and I think, wow, God has, he has changed me. And we don't take the credit for that. It's the Holy Spirit in us. I love that. We don't have that very much anymore in a lot of churches. We've talked about this so many times that I'll mention it again. We relate in our brokenness, don't we? But we need as believers to relate in our victory. Does anyone have victory in Christ? 
Some of us, we have habitual sin in our lives right now that have been there for so long, we think, just ain't changing. Everything around me, like I see God changing this part of me and this part of me and this part of me and this part. But there's this one thing, there's this fear, there's this anxiety, there's this sexual sin, there's this thought pattern, there's this, this pride, this jealousy. And we just think, man, it's never gonna get broken. And Paul says, you got a new nature and the Holy Spirit's in you. You can have victory over that. You can have victory. We need to be reminded that's part of the good news. Victory over the present power of sin. And number three, the future salvation. One day we will be saved from the presence of sin. So you're saved from past punishment. You're saved from the power of of the present power of sin. And you are saved in Christ from the presence of sin. Right now, life really is difficult. Why? Because there's sin in the world. One day... Things are going to be made new and we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth and we're going to be sitting at, uh, at the table with Jesus and there's going to be a reservation if your faith is in him and there will not be hospitals and there's not going to be military and there's not going to be a whole bunch of things that all revolve around the fact that humans are sinful and there's brokenness. It is going to be beautiful and there won't be the opportunity to rebel against God or sin and it's going to be eternal like that. That's really, really good news. Because you will just be in the presence of God and you won't have to worry about making the right decision anymore. You'll be in the right place with no decisions. And sometimes that's a beautiful place. This is fun. Any questions about these verses? It is packed full of theology. Okay. Let's get to the good news. Are you ready for the good news? Here in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we've been saved from what? Sin. And we have been saved by what? Grace. Question number two, what are you saved by? You're saved by grace. This is good news. Verse four says, but God, that is the best but, and all the buts that you've ever heard of or seen, this is the best but that you will ever come across in verse four of Ephesians chapter two, but God. Some of you are laughing. That is a joke. I'm, we, we're trying to lighten it up just a little bit because that was real, real thick tension, verses one through three. Verse four, but God. Being what? Rich in mercy. Because of what? His great love. This is all about God. This is, this is all about God. There should be freedom when you read these words like, oh, the pressure is off. This is, this is because he's good even when we were dead. So Paul says, don't, don't, don't forget, you didn't bring anything to the table. You never did. You say, well, God was awesome and he was great, but I was a wonderful person of faith. Or I was already headed down the right path. Or, you know, I grew up in a Christian family. No, you brought nothing to the table. God brought everything. He said, you can't even come in the house unless I invite you in. He made us alive. So you go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Some of us don't feel very spiritually alive. But there's no real in-between. There's death and there's life. And spiritually, if your faith is in Christ, you're alive. And then here's the beautiful verse. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him. So here's our identity in Christ. In him, in him, in him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is what you get. If your identity is in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, you are saved by grace. So, Let's go back to that rescue story. Every rescue story, got to have a hero, right? Now, in general, religion will offer you two heroes, works or grace. You can be the hero. Someone else has to be the hero. What is it going to be? And, and here's the thing. Let me, let me, let me kind of rifle through some options that other religions might give you. 
This is what we call works. Now, works aren't bad, but it's all about who the works are coming from and what they're for. Let me, let me just throw out some for you. If, you. if you were to follow these paths, here's what these religions would tell you is going to save you. Not grace, but works. In Buddhism, ceasing your desires, so denying yourself, is going to save you. In Confucianism, Education, self-reflection, self-cultivation, maybe living a moral life, that's going to save you. In Hinduism, detaching from your separated ego, making an effort to live in unity with the divine might save you. In Islam, living a holy life of good deeds might save you. You could throw Catholicism in there and Mormonism as well. In Orthodox Judaism, repentance, prayer, and working hard to obey the law is going to save you. In New Ageism, maybe gaining a new perspective through which you now see that you're connected to all things as a divine oneness is going to save you. In Taoism, aligning yourself with the Tao and have to have peace and harmony is going to save you. And for some people, <coughs> excuse me, choking, simply being a good person is going to save you. For some people, simply dying. You ever, you ever go to a funeral of someone that you think I'm pretty sure they weren't a believer, but people in the congregation just say, they're in a better place. They're like, who said they're in a better place? Who says? They could be in hell. But some people, eh, we'd hate to think they're in hell. We're just going to assume it's better. Let's not assume. Obviously, be diplomatic if you're the guy at the funeral wondering, hmm, you can be right, but you don't want to be a jerk. But there's a different option. Christianity. This is what separates Christianity from all other religions, right? This is grace. This is about works, but it's about Jesus' works. So it's trusting in his works, not your own. This changes everything. Some of us, though, we go to, especially in the evangelical culture, we put so much pressure on us to be good people and to raise our kids right and to make all the good decisions that we should make that we start to feel the same bondage that everyone else in these other religions experience. Shouldn't we have a freedom that they don't have? Like, what's the good news if we take grace and turn it into works? (laughs) Even the works we do as Christians on the other side of salvation, on this side of salvation, should be freeing. But we'll get to that. We're saved by grace through faith. But what in the world is our faith in? I hear over and over and over and over people say, I have faith. I'm a believer. In what? See, the value of your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. And there's people in churches today, all the time, people listening who, who they come and they're around Christians and they hear the Christian message, but their faith is not in the God of the Bible. And it's not in Jesus. Some people's faith is simply in faith. This <laughs> isn't spirituality. They just feel like, I should just have faith. Everybody has faith in something. You have faith in yourself. (laughs) You have faith in your own wisdom, your own pride, your own ability to figure things out. That's faith. That's not a good faith. So we've just placed like faith in this this pool of it's just inherently good. No, sometimes it's horrible. If it's in the wrong thing, it's really bad. Some of us, um, we have faith in karma. Well, I I just think if if I do enough good stuff, and we do this within the church, if I just, I know I've got sin, but as long as I just kind of keep doing more good and moving forward than bad, I'll be okay. And it's like, what kind of Christian Hindu blend did we just make this into? Some people, they um, have faith in fate. Well, I'm just going to trust it's all going to work out. Right? I wouldn't. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Some of us, we have faith in God. That sounds really Christian, doesn't it? But what in the world does that mean? Like the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, talks about all these foreign gods who Paul says they were no gods at all. But people worship them as gods. That means nothing. The demons believe in God, right? They shudder. 
at the God of the Bible. And I'm wondering, when someone says, I got faith in God, what does that even mean? What God? Some of us, we have faith in morals. Well, if I just do the right thing. Some of us have faith in religion. Well, if I just do the right thing in the right way, I'll be good. And there's a bunch of Christians coasting with faith in these things. And I have to ask, could this be why you don't see the power and presence of Jesus working in your life, transforming your life? And some of us would say, well, it's because I I lived a pretty decent life before. What transformation is there going to be? There's always transformation. There is no going from spiritually dead to spiritually alive and sanctifying and being grown in Christ without like, a good chunk of transformation. Those two lives look nothing alike. But maybe it's because they they just don't have faith. Let me ask you, without you answering this out loud, for your own sake, what is your faith actually in? If you had 10 seconds to answer it, would you even give a biblical answer? Or would you just like, "Uh, my faith is in God. I just feel like going to church is the right thing and Is it in that Jesus is perfect? That he's the holy sacrifice? That that, that there's one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that there's sin and that there needs to be a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior and that he died on the cross. He did all the work. He completed it. And we bring nothing to the table, but he wants to exchange our sin for his righteousness. And he says, you can do that if your faith is in me. And he wants to give us unmerited favor. That is grace. That is really, really, really good news that we can have eternal life in him. What is your faith actually in? If you sit down and ask yourself that question and ponder that question, your experience in Christ will be directly related to however you answer that question. If, you, if it's, well, I just feel like church is kind of a good thing, you're going to just get boring church life experience. But if it's, I trust that Jesus died for me. And that I'm new in him. And that every day I've got new purpose and my identity's new and I've got value that's not what people say. It's what God says. It's not how I feel. It's what God has done. Your life is going to change. It's going to change. Some of us, we hear this and it's kind of depressing. Because we think, man, I don't, I don't know, man. Have I been going down the wrong path? Here's one really, really awesome part of Christianity. The first time that I got arrested, no good story starts that way, right? The first time I got arrested, I was, I, I can't remember if I was 15 or 16, but here's basically what went down. I was driving around my tiny town with my buddy, and we had, um, Time to kill. It was midnight on a Friday night. Nothing happening. When your parents say nothing good happens after midnight, like that, that's real. That's good. Good advice and in truth. Um, but we were driving down the highway close to our little town, and um, my buddy said, "Hey, did you see that sign?" And we recognized. I recognized the sign. It had the last name of one of the girls that we knew and liked. And so um, he said, "Let's go get it for her." And I had a big chain and a big Chevy truck. And so we pull up on the side of the road on the highway, wrap it around, and we yank this thing out of the ground. And so I've just got it in the back of my truck bed, and we're driving along. And so then we say, "Well, what else do you want to do?" Now let's just go spin around by the high school real quick. So we go spin around by the high school, and of course nobody's there. It's one in the morning in a town of 150 people. Not many people are going to higher education at that point in the day. And there just happens to be a police officer looking for idiots like me. And so we met in this divine appointment, and he didn't have to investigate very far because he just walked up and he saw um, part of uh, the state's property laying in my <laughs> in the back of my bed and a uh, half-empty 30-pack of whatever cheap beer we could get in the front seat between me and my buddy. We couldn't hide it. It was just was what it was. And he said, get out of the truck. And so that was the first time I got arrested. And I, went, I remember I went to um, like some kind of juvenile court thing, and they gave me a whole bunch of community service hours, and I had to do something that I dreaded. I had to do, um, like, uh, what are they, what do they call? Oh, jury duty. I had to do, like, youth jury duty for other youth. But here's the thing. 
I would have done a zillion community service hours. I didn't want to be crammed in this little room with all these people. Like my anxiety was going nuts. And so I did all these service hours, all these service hours. And I'm thinking, what do I do about this? What do I do? I do not want to serve. For most people, that would have been the easiest part. Just go do your community, go do your um, jury duty. The community service is what's going to stink. But finally, one day I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. So I just decided I'm just going to drive down to Manhattan. And I did. And and I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk to one of the prosecutor people, and I'm just going to tell them, like, I've got this anxiety, it's horrible. I will do as much community service as you want. Put on as much as you want. Please don't make me do jury duty. And I just humbled myself. I went in there, and I talked to him. You want to know what he said? He said, I'm glad you talked to me. Signed a piece of paper, said you're done with all of it. No more community service, no jury duty. Good call, right? For some of us, when we hear all about the wrath of God and we hear about life in Christ and we think, I don't know if I'm closer to this side than this side. I thought I was pretty set on this side. The beautiful thing about grace is if you're on mile 25 of a 26-mile marathon going in the wrong direction, you don't have to backtrack to take a different path. You just turn and you bow down and you receive grace right then and there. And if that's you, then receive that grace. Verses 7 through 9. We've got a couple points and we'll rock and roll through them here in our last few minutes. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Third question. Saved so that? Not really a question. What do we do? What are we saved for? I mean, it says in verse 7, so that. So all of this was done. We were dead, but then we're alive in Christ when our faith is in Jesus. And and, and there's a so that. So that God gets glory. So that God gets glory. Look what he says. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, I'm going to do something in you, but ultimately it's going to blow up that the whole world would be able to see how good I am, how loving I am, how rich in mercy I am because of what they see in your life. Sometimes we feel guilty about sharing our testimony as if like, eh, it's just not a cool testimony. I mean, I was just a religious kid and I just always kind of believed or, you know, I got the jailhouse testimony. No, like the whole point of all of this is that we get to brag on God. Even the smallest work in your life, which you deem small, is huge because, again, if you were spiritually dead, anything in life that happens is awesome when you have life in Christ. And so you get to brag on him. Because it's all about making him famous. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So again, grace is unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough to get it. He just gives it because he's good. Not a result of works. So that, here's another so that, no one may post. I love these verses because they're so clearly just pinpoint what the gospel is and how Christianity is different than every other religion. But I love how Paul, he's saying, I want to tell you how God awesome is, how awesome God is. But then I also want to remind you, you're not all that. And I want to remind you, this is all about God. But remember, you didn't bring anything to the table so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Nobody's going to boast. No one's like, that's the beauty of Christianity. The more you feel like a failure, the more God's saying, I can do something special here. The more you're like, I'm the biggest screw up ever. I failed at like a zillion things in my life. My relationships, not a good track record. My career, what career? My moral record, very spotty. And Jesus says, you'll make a really good Christian. Because everyone knows how broken you are. So just tell them how amazing I am. That's really good news for broken people. Let me ask you. 
when you're talking about your faith, seriously, nonchalantly, whatever it might be, do you refer more to yourself in that conversation or to Jesus? Is it more about your struggles or his perfection? Some of us, we have Christian conversations that are basically just, yeah, 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 we're going to assume that God is good and all that, but let me tell you all my problems. And it's a self-centered, self-consuming faith. When God draws attention to himself, it's a good thing. When people draw attention to themselves, it's a bad thing. We just got done with Halloween a few weeks ago. I'm not a big Halloween guy. Um, But five years ago when we started the church in Utah, we had like an outreach event because it was just a dark place. And we were going to do something. And I was a brand new pastor. I didn't know what to do. So we're going to do like this trunk or treat thing, right? You ever been part of a trunk or treat? I'm thinking about Skittles and Snickers right now. I'm getting hungry. My, My stomach's growling. So we did this and I put a bunch of thought into what we should do. You got to get candy. Okay. I didn't grow up in church world, but I'm guessing that we just open our trunks and like just throw some candy. I don't know. This is weird, but I will do it. It's two hours before this event. I didn't have a costume. I got to go get a costume. So I go to Walmart and I just look at all their stuff. I'm thinking, just give me something cheap because I'm going to throw this thing away when I'm done. And I found a clown costume. So I got, I got an extra large clown costume and I come home. Real quick, I do some makeup, put on my little clown outfit. Let me let me just show you real quick what I look like. <laughs> I'm looking good. When you're standing next to a werewolf and you're like, that's a good looking werewolf compared to the guy in the middle, you know it's a scary clown costume. Here's why. Here's why I could only show you this picture. It is a real picture. <laughs> I know. It is a real picture. If you are online listening to this, just know this is the grace of God on your life that you're not watching what they're watching. Here's, here's where you see the top. Here's what happened. I go home. I throw on this clown costume. I get it. It's weird. It's scary. It was an extra large. I come out of the bathroom and Tara just puts her hands over her mouth and she says, oh no, you cannot do this to the kids. <laughs> But the reason was because even though it was an extra large, it was about four inches too tight in all the wrong areas. Without going into detail, let's just say I could have been arrested for what I look like at that moment in time. Matter of fact, it was creepy enough to be a pastor in Utah. Then you become a clown pastor in Utah. And then you have a super, super, super tight clown outfit that you cannot stretch in certain directions. You would not have sent your kids to that church festival. I planned. I prepped. I initiated. And it was horrible. This is going to be the worst transition into spiritual truth, but you you get what you pay for and this is all free. Listen to me. Whether it be a creepy pastor in Utah or anyone else on earth, when humans try to show off, bring attention to themselves, no matter how well they plan or prep for it, it usually doesn't do anyone good. But when the God of the universe who is perfect says, I'm going to glorify my name, I'm going to make myself famous, everybody wins. Right when, when he says, I'm going to draw attention to myself, he does it by blessing us. God planned for it, our salvation. He initiated our salvation. He completed our salvation. And he did it for his own glory and his own name. But it's for our benefit. Some of us, one of the greatest freedoms we will ever experience in the Christian faith is when we realize this thing has way less to do with us than we ever realized. That's why Hebrews 12, 2 says, keep your eyes, focus your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the beginning. He is the end. He's everything in between. A Christ-centered faith praises God, thinks about God, focuses on God. It's all about the finished work of Jesus on the cross. If it's not for your life, then I can almost dictate the drama that you're going to have. You, want, you tell me someone, you tell me a, a struggling Christian, I'll tell you a Christian who, who's probably got a self-centered faith. 
But those who have their eyes on Jesus, they find themselves lost and then found. And it's beautiful. They lose themselves and they find life in Christ. Last but not least, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The last question, what are we saved for? We're saved for good works. Now you say, this doesn't make sense, right? I thought this was not about works. This is really confusing. It's all about works. It's about Jesus' works that lead to our salvation, but you can't flip-flop works. You can't say our works are before salvation. No, but we have good works after salvation. Everything that you do in the name of God before your faith, this is crucial, before your faith is in Jesus is filthy rags in the sight of God. That's what the Bible says. Everything you do, even the smallest thing in the name of Jesus after your faith is in Jesus is incredibly valuable. And everything has more meaning than ever before. He says, for we are his workmanship. Picture this, this picture of God who, who is a creator and he's crafting you. And nobody comes out of the womb broken in the sense that God didn't know what he was doing. You say, how could, how could this person be dealt this hand of cards? And mentally or emotionally or physically, it looks like they weren't given what other people were given. But God is a creator and he says, we are his workmanship. You have a purpose, you have meaning, you have value because of the one who creates. But how often do we walk into life, letting other people tell us what our value is, letting rejection and bad experiences on earth define us, searching and searching and searching for purpose when we could turn around and ask the one who created us and says, you're my workmanship. You should probably know what I'm here for and what I'm worth. And he does. And it's beautiful. So as we close out, let me rifle off for you. You can scribble these down, study them later. I just want to give you some applications, some things that will help you as we leave here tonight. If you're saying to yourself, well, what are my good works? What's my purpose? What am I here for? Here's some things that are going to help you. Number one, you want to know what your good works are? Anything you do in his name, for his glory. This is good news. Mama who wakes up at three in the morning, feeding, hearing a baby crying, saying, is this, uh, is this even serving God? I used to be a greeter. I used to do stuff in the local church. And here I am. If you do it in the name of Jesus, it's a good work. This is, hey, you're downtown on your lunch break and you open a door for a little old lady. If you did it in the name of Jesus, this is your good work. This is your good work. You see, There's no difference for Christians between the sacred and the secular. You can't say as a Christian, well, I I, I don't serve God in my work because um, I've got a secular job. No. Jesus' good works were as much done when he was a carpenter learning to obey his mom and dad as a child as it was when he was teacher, prophet, ultimately Messiah. They were all good works. It's not like he started his good works In his ministry, his ministry was his whole life. When you go to work, when you go to your job, when you do things with a heart that wants to honor God in the name of Jesus, I'm not saying you can sin and do whatever you want and that's good works. Of course not. But every little thing means more in Christ. Number two, some, not all. What are your good works? You have some good works that were created for you. God had them predestined before this whole thing started. But you got some, not all. Some of us need to get good at praying and telling people no. Some of us, when we, when we become Christians, we think, well, you know what? I just feel like I should say yes to everything because number one, I'm kind of a people pleaser and I seek approval. But also because how are you going to say no to something that's godly, right? Well, there's a zillion things that you can do for God. He created specific ones for you to do. And you've got to be able to be in tune with God's spirit. Pray, ask him, and he'll let you know. Number three, 
Focus on what's revealed, not hidden. Some of us, we, we wonder, what is God's will for my life? He's already revealed his will in his word. He's told us, go make disciples. Love me. Love your neighbor. He tells us all kinds of things to do. If you simply devoted your life to doing the things he's already told us in his word, you would live a life jam-packed of awesomeness. You wouldn't get bored. Some of us, we want to know, God, do I move here? Do I do this? There's all kinds of hidden things that are part of his will. He'll reveal those things when he needs to. But you can focus on the things he's already told you to do. Number four, lifestyle, not compartmental. Some of us, we compartmentalize our faith to the extent that we'll come and serve for an hour on Sunday morning, but we'll live like hell the other six days of the week. And we've gotten comfortable this way. And for you to do good works in Christ means that you have a lifestyle, you have a disposition, even if you don't have a position uh, or a title, you have a disposition daily where you wake up and you say, I'm, I'm ready to serve, I'm ready to love, I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do all day, whether I'm in a church building or not. Last but not least, present over the future. Again, focus on serving right now, wherever you are, not well, when I'm done with college, he'll reveal. Or when the kids leave the house and I'm an empty nester, then the next step will take it. Or, or um, when the kids get older, because right now it's just crazy. You can stop yourself from doing the good works he has for you right now because you get caught up in what he might do in the next season of life. But there's good works in this season too. Number six, people over tasks. Be people driven. God-driven, not task-driven when you serve the Lord. Some of us, we get so caught up in doing something for God, we forget to love people, and that's the purpose. We forget to love him. I remember being at a VBS in Virginia, in this little old church, and we had all of these non-believing families and kids coming in, and the little old ladies who were sweet and wonderful, and they were nice, wonderful ladies, they were serving um, snacks and lunch and whatnot. And I remember they, they, they had their little stations um, set up and they were giving out chips. And I watched them as some of the kids came back for seconds. And they had tons of chips and plenty of money, believe me, in this church to go buy more chips if they wanted. And they said, no, no more chips. Because they had designated certain amount of chips for certain amount of kids. And I just thought, I think that's where tasks just rule people. Like, they're kids. Let them have a bag of chips in Jesus' name. And all the kids said, amen. Number seven, being overdoing. Some of us are eager to do, do, do. God, show me where to serve, show me what to do. Your primary calling in life will always be to abide in Jesus, to be connected to Jesus, to listen to him, to talk with him, to... It's about the relationship. He'll take you where he wants you to go. But you got to be with him. And last but not least... The good works you're going to be doing, make sure that um, you choose his over yours. There's going to be times in your life where you're going to think, I could take this job because it makes X amount of money, but it might isolate me. Or I could take a lesser job that puts me around some people. And you have to do, what do I do? What do I do? He might call you to the lesser job financially that has more ministry opportunity. You might want to move to this city and he says, nah, I know that's cool and exciting. Stay in this city. It's boring and you're going to hate it. But I got a plan for you there. You're going to have to day in and day out choose his plans over yours. It's all about God and his glory. He's the hero of the story. I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but that's a great transition into prayer. Let's pray. Father God,